Thanks for taking the time to listen to this NHS Employers podcast. For all the latest NHS HR workforce information, visit www.nhsemployers.org. Hello and welcome to the second part of our podcast in which we will continue to explore the subject of mental health in the workplace. One of the questions that I was going to ask was, do you think managers are well-trained enough to be able to uh, cope with mental health issues and support staff with mental health issues in the workplace? And I think we've probably touched on some of that from what you've said. So I suppose the question following on from that is, what do you think we could do to provide that support? I think managers, <coughs> again, it's about soft skills. Mm-hmm. It's about, they play a really critical role in terms of identifying and supporting staff going forward. I think organisations need to move away from task-orientated managers who fill a role and become much more people-centred. And critically, when we talk about um, sort of discrimination and bias, it's about reducing that unconscious bias that the managers and we all bring into the workplace and recognising that and what we do to mitigate that. So really, going back to earlier conversation about recognising the individual it's really critical one of the what managers do is get to know the individual who they manage so they see the person and not the condition because they they may have a negative experience around mental health and if that comes and they see that condition within their team they may react negatively towards that or they may not have required skills because they haven't had required training to support that particular individual so i agree it's patchy but i agree also um, there's some interventions that can be done or put in place to better support them so they can support um, their staff going forward. I think, I think, go, I think within, within UCLH we've, we've reached a, a point where managers are equipped to support. They don't have the knowledge but they're, equi- they're equipped to support. So um, this is the first organisation where, where I've been in where managers, where, where, where employees are at the heart of the solutions in, in relation to illness and, and including mental health. So in, in any other organisation, managers may refer an individual to occupational health or to some health practitioner, get some advice, and then the manager implements the, 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 uh, the support. What we've, what we've, the, the stance we've taken is, while we have that framework, we put the individual at the heart of it. So we get the advice, then we have a conversation with the individual to make sure that the advice we're getting in terms of recommendations suits the, what the individual uh, expects and, and needs. We then put review processes in place to make sure that those recommendations are meeting with the individual's needs before we then fully reintegrate the individual back into the workforce. I think too easy. Um, it's too easy to rely on processes and to rely on inf- uh, on, on, on information and not put the individual at the heart of um, of uh, one's practice. And I, I think in doing so, what, what, we, what we tend to do is alienate individuals from from the uh, from the workplace or make it more difficult to, to help them reintegrate. I suppose that links, doesn't it, to what you were saying earlier about the softer skills. Yeah. You know, we need to equip managers with those softer skills because some of that is having an open and honest you know, communication with them. Yeah, I think that's right. Information and um, process can only take you so far. In our work with um, public bodies, we are often focused on helping public bodies to to deliver a human rights based approach to all that they're doing including their employment practices and specifically in relation to mental health because when you use a human rights based approach it brings to life all that we 
are trying to talk about when you talk about person-centred approaches because human rights is an internationally agreed framework which recognises that equal value of every member of the human family. Sure. Backed up by law, the Human Rights Act in this case protects all of us when our rights are compromised, but the value of a human rights-based approach is it um, gives people, if you like, a um, a internationally agreed legal framework that places the human being in front of you, um, right at the heart of your decision-making process, and importantly, um, recognises the um, the imbalance of power that, of course, exists between an employer and an employee. And he a human rights framework or a human rights approach kind of addresses putting that person at the centre of your decision-making but also recognising that imbalance of power between an employer and an employee. That's why we found in our work around the country um, many public bodies are increasingly using a human rights framework to um, improve their policies and practices to bring them to life, if you like. That's really interesting, thank you. Um, do you have any examples that you could talk to us about um, which demonstrate good practice in that area? Um, particularly around the human rights-based approach, or equally any networks that you are familiar with that you think it would be helpful to share with us? So an organisation uh, or network that, I, that I've, I've used um, previously has been uh, Mindful Employer, which looks specifically at uh, mental health issues in the workplace. Um, individuals need to sign up to a um, to or commit to a certain level of, uh, of activity and then they're audited upon that level of activity which is really useful to keep it in in the forefront of, of, of organizations um, uh, mindsets We're not specifically in relation to mental health but dealing with individuals with disability there's a, f a further framework that uh, we've used within UCLH which is the um, International Disability Standards Council's um, accreditation framework. So uh, we're the first organisation in the UK to, to achieve the accreditation. Um, we used a framework in which to ensure that managing indivi disabled individuals in the workplace is, is really at the heart of what we, uh, what we need to, uh, to do in managing staff and making sure that everyone is pro appropriately supported. I mean, I can share one of my members, Delights, in terms of their, their staff network and the work that they do. So they've signed up to the Mindful Employee Initiative. And what they do is also support staff within the organisation. And that work that they've taken forward um, is actually helped to reduce um, mental health in the workplace. So mm -hmm. we reduce the absenteeism within that particular organisation. Mm -hmm. So again, it's a small initiative, but actually it's had a long lasting effect working with the employer. One of the um, one of the uh, barriers that I've I've um, identified over the course of my, my, my career has been um, while occupational health are a very useful resource in supporting individuals, managers frequently see them as a uh, a way in which they can uh, pass the 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 the, the, uh, the problem almost. So so makes refer someone to occupational health, but occupational health, occupational health will then come up with a solution. Um, there's no real ownership from ma from a manager in, in, in that in that process uh, other than the referral. What we've what we've done um, at UCLH is to introduce um, a a process by which individuals can talk about uh, any reasonable adjustments that they require with their manager as part of day-to-day -day supervision. So we've, we've put a framework in place which overlays the the, the supervision process. So it, it 
brings transparency and ownership of support for, for individuals to the individual and their manager and, and makes that, that dialogue an open one without, without having to be um, necessarily a medical discussion about, about a condition or about a, a particular issue but about what support individuals need and then how, how do we make that, um, how do we a, put that, that, put that um, support in place and then b how do, we, how do we review that support to make sure that it, it, it remains in place. It doesn't undermine the role of occupational health, they, they, they or any other health professional may be involved in that discussion but actually it's the individual and the manager who owns that discussion and the others inform it rather than it being a discussion with third parties. I mean, some human rights, like the human right to be free from inhuman and degrading treatment, are um, are absolute. But most human rights are actually qualified, and they they can sometimes be um, interfered with as long as the interference is um, proportional and the least most restrictive measure. And I think, in terms of an example of how a human rights framework can approach, is that often you are having to support employers in a way which balances different different competing needs and um, human rights provides a really um, well tried and tested framework for how you balance some of those competing needs and you mentioned occupational health I mean there was a rather famous but somewhat notorious decision around um, uh, manual lifting policies where some employers brought in mm. blanket policies whereby um, their staff were um, the policy was they couldn't um, manual lift on their own because of course there was a, a risk to injury to the staff member and you know they were found not to have been proportional because whilst you need to balance the risk to your staff on occupational health grounds um, if you have a blanket policy that manual lifting can only ever take place when there's two people there that of course means that sometimes your staff simply can't do your job and you're not balancing the need of someone who needs some lifting support there. So what we find in our work with public bodies across, um, across the UK is that when properly explored and understood, the human rights framework is especially helpful for balancing these very um, difficult issues because you're not trying to decide which right trumps the other one, you're trying to find decisions and policies which interfere as little as possible with everyone's rights. That's fascinating. Thank you very much. Um, moving on now to talk about partnership working, um, what do you see as the role of trade unions in supporting employees with mental health issues? I mean, they, they play a vital role, really, don't they, in working collaboratively with, with employers in terms of addressing the mental health emotional well-being in the workplace so they usually have access to a huge range of resources and expertise so it's not an either or it has to be a collaboration because it's to the well-being and to the benefit of the employees really and the members so I think they play a key and vital role and actually you know, they provide an, a useful resource for employees to tap into in terms of extending that expertise and bring that knowledge back into the workplace so yeah absolutely key vital partnership. I would totally echo that. I think I think um, going further that if they're properly trained, then they can they can help um, individuals in the early in the, in the early stages of identifying mental health. In that there may be an issue that may be worth having discussions with. In the same way that I'd expect a manager to have that discussion, but the relation the relationship between uh, a, a, a staff excuse me a staff member and their, their union rep is often much closer than between the, the, um, the staff member and their manager. So I think that they're, 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 very, they're very key in identifying 
um, or helping individuals to identify if there's any potential issues. I think secondly is about providing advocacy, so helping broker between the employees and the managers if the, if the individual has identified that there's a potential issue, um, to help the manager understand that the individual needs support in a way that the individual may not be able to articulate themselves because that, that, that said relationship has already identified. No, I'd echo that. Trade unions have clearly got a um, very important, vital role to play. Um, of course, not only in providing advice, advocacy, information and support to employees and collaborating with employers, employers to ensure that the systems are fair, but also, of course, to um, step in and um, help people claim redress when discrimination has happened, because mm -hmm. obviously we do have to recognise that discrimination, and particularly on on mental health grounds is still relatively relatively common and trade unions got a very important role to play in ensuring that does not go unaddressed. Yeah. Thank you. And following on from that, um, do you see a role for staff networks in supporting staff with mental health issues in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, from, from my personal experience, um, from my members' experience at ENEI, most definitely. I mean, one of the key pieces of research I looked at into preparation for this podcast was looking at the Time for Change recent research that was um, launched in, uh, in March, which looked at mental health and the effect on BME, and particularly about, you know, if you're BME, you're more likely to be ostracised, you know, unlikely to make friends, um, difficult to sustain work, and actually, you get collaboration work between disability networks and BME networks, that's vital because they, they, they provide that social space to have that conversation and have those access, inf those informal networks, if you like, then rather than maybe formally going to the trade union or having that conversation with the manager. So if, you know, if it's done well, it can be absolutely supported. And I think employers need, to, if they're not doing so already, need to involve their staff networks in any initiatives, any of the um, programs um, they're taking forward within their respective organisations because that's a huge resource and a huge pool there that they, they could actually tap into. So actually, yeah, networks I believe play a vital role in supporting organisations. Thank you. I, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. My only hesitation is um, the organisations that I've worked in, the organisations I'm aware of, frequently struggle to keep um, momentum of, of, uh, of, um, of uh, staff networks. In a way that they don't, in terms of in terms of trade unions, I think um, in well in in well organised organisations uh, which support diversity, um, at, at, or where where diversity is at the heart of the organisation, I think they, they very clearly um, operate in a much better way. But from my experience, um, I've not seen that happen outside of maybe two or three organisations, particularly well. Where we got a, a large momentum of, of people attending different staff networks. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can recognise the, the challenge in that. So, when organised well, I think yes, it could be effective. I think there is. You're right. I think there is a an impact there where organisations are struggling to have staff networks in place, and it's also about the resources. Because sometimes staff networks to do staff network, you're pressurised. It's usually you do it outside your day job, yeah. and that's an additional pressure to, to just do that work alone. So there could be a particular impact if they're not well resourced or well supported and managed within the organisation. So yes, I take that on board. If there's not enough resource and support put in place, yes, then it will be a struggle for them to be truly effective. But where they are supported and they are resourced, yeah, I think they're an effective mechanism. 
No, I think staff networks properly resourced can be um, very effective mechanisms for building momentum and support for human rights and equalities work mm -hmm. inside large organisations. I think, I think we have to always remember that human rights and equalities work is a matter for the whole organisation yeah. and everyone in it. So staff networks have to be um, a galvanising influence and not, um, forgive me for saying this, not a silo yeah. into which um, concern for human rights and equalities is placed to avoid it being um, a top-level strategic corporate concern and also a yeah. concern of everyone. I think it's really important to remember that that's the role of staff networks to ensure that human rights and equalities is something which everyone has front of mind all day, every day, across the organisation. How do you think some of that momentum is maintained then? Because we've talked about that momentum and we've talked about the challenge of that and this is something that um, the health and wellbeing leads we often discuss in terms of how do you actually practically sustain that momentum and is it something about engaging and communicating with staff and how do we do that? I think you know, the essence is just highlighted there, it actually has to be owned by the organisation so in terms of keeping the momentum, I mean good networks have good links into the organisation so what we term at ENI is inclusive leadership, it's about demonstrating those positive behaviours so it's not just the policy or the process, it's, it's, it's the behaviours that come from the leaders in the organisation and actually it's what they're doing for example to create that safe space so actually organisations can have the space to talk about emotional well-being, mental health in the workplace because sometimes just by providing that safe space to talk about this issue you help to mitigate it. The challenge then comes when individuals don't have that space to yeah. talk about the issue, it becomes a siloed issue or the dangers we highlight it becomes like a network only issue and it becomes a them issue not us and I think that's the risk so actually um, yes it's really vital that inclusive leadership um, plays a vital part and also there's a recognition there in terms of recognising unconscious bias you know moving away from that you know disability this is disability this is race it's about actually it's about the biases at play yeah. and so that everyone supports that and everybody recognises that in terms of how they tackle that and supports a more inclusive culture in the workplace. I think the twin things that you need are we need to be able to encourage people to celebrate the progress we have made on human rights, equalities and non-discrimination because a child born in this world of ours today will be more likely to have their human rights respected than at any time in human history and at the same time to recognise that that human rights journey is far from complete and I think we need to be explicit about human rights being a journey, that we all have a role to play in delivering a society in which truly every member of the human family is of equal worth and celebrating that, being explicit about that and recognising all the roles we can play to um, continue that human rights journey because we know that there are still many people whose human rights are quite illusory and I think people facing mental health challenges in the UK today are one example of a class of people where um, their human rights are still relatively at risk mm. I'm afraid really interesting point about celebrating our success because I, I know yeah. that that's one of our challenges that we do face in the NHS. I, th I think it's, it's, it's somewhat human nature isn't it? We, we, we tend not to want to shout where we're particularly successful mm. um, for, for fear of, fear of, of attention 
but I think I think you're right. I think public sector organisations, in particular, have done a, a huge amount, and the private sector organisations have also um, made uh, made large pro large inroads into um, creating a more inclusive workforce. But we, but, and I don't think we we've, we ever really stopped to celebrate how far we've come. Um, uh, I, and uh, echoing Stephen entirely, that we, there's a, a, an awful lot more that we need to do to before we're able to really recognise the individual as in, in their in their true true beauty rather than the the um, the, the characteristics that, that, that the law requires us to identify. That's really interesting that you should say that. So my next question <laughs> is what more do you think employers need to do in order to make their employees feel able to talk about their mental health issues at work? I think we need we need to move away from, from the medical model. Um, as Peter suggested, I, I think while we're reliant upon do you meet this definition, are, are you protected in law, then we, we, we miss the, the individual at the heart of that. And I think um, what, identifying a process, not, not, not necessarily our process, but a process which, which allows an open dialogue between manager and individual regardless of um, condition. Um, Regardless of um, of any medical uh, uh, statements, and actually look at what what's required to get the best out of that person, I think is, is the is has got to be the starting point for that. Absolutely, absolutely. And just and just to build onto that, for me, it's about you know supporting managers to have that conversation for them to challenge, because yeah. you know I'm aware that sometimes diversity, most managers may hit diversity in the workplace, not at home, and actually for some groups what we call that might create some social distancing so they won't actually have that conversation in the first place to find out how the individual member staff is being affected you know because the tipping point between pressure and stress and it's individual in all of us mm -hmm. so what one individual might exceed under that pressure another individual that would be a tipping point into stress mm -hmm. and they start taking time out of work you know they're coming in late they're, they're not finishing their deadline they work on time and actually what a manager needs to do is be quite savvy to that and sensitive to that and sometimes my concern is that they may not be but mm -hmm. it's about encouraging that that dialogue that open and honest dialogue and not be too not caught up in pc because I think there's a danger that actually we become risk averse and we, we yeah. term things political correctness. And it's not about political correctness, it's about actually being open and having that open dialogue. I think also um, employers would do well to always recognise how deep the stigma attached to mental health still is, mm -hmm. despite the success that awareness raising work that's gone on and to recognise that that's what they're confronting and for all of their policies and procedures and the way they train their staff to have that as one of, as one of the starting points. That's lovely, thank you. Um, one of my final questions is what things do you think an organisation like ours, NHS employers, should be doing to support employers? Well, we found in our work that when public bodies have embraced um, human rights approaches and provided like strategic leadership at the top and training and development work across the organisation, they have really seen the benefits to the um, way they deliver their work, the culture of the organisation. So I think that we have many, many examples at the British Institute of Human Rights of where um, 
working to embed human rights um, across an organisation can really pay dividends. But still, I think employers need to do more to make that part and parcel of what they do and to ensure that it's maintained. And it's actually still surprising how many organisations are still very, very early on in that journey. We are, after all, you know, 14 years since the Human Rights Act came into force. And the level of um, understanding about how human rights can um, help employers deliver their work better and, of course, lawfully remains obviously much much less well developed than it does, for example, with the Equality Act. Mm. And that, I think, does need to change. I think um, the activities that, that organisations such as NHS employers um, can do will, will depend largely upon the organisations that they're supporting. So part, partly it's about signposting make, to making sure that, that organisations are able to access resources or networks to support them in, 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 as appropriate. Others about uh, raising awareness, such as today, um, but I think what's, what's critical is, is to get um, is, is to help communicate the message that, um, and particularly in the NHS, that, that there's significant evidence that suggests that individuals that are free from discrimination in organisations that that, um, that can tackle discrimination effectively will provide a better quality of care to patients, and patients will 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 benefit. Um, and I think. Um, when we're putting individuals at the heart of our practice, be that management or patients in terms of our, our, our clinical care, um, to remember that, the, that whatever we do for our staff has to transcend into our, into our patients as well. and that, that, that we, we can't look at them in, in isolation. And I think um, tying those together, um, helping managers and helping organisations to recognise that providing the best possible patient care can only happen by tackling these sorts of issues across the board um, is really key for me. I mean, yeah, I can't really add any further to that. Really. I mean, the only thing for me is about using your influence to, in terms of health professionals and how they support maybe the small media enterprises. Because, you know, the large ones are fine, they've got occupational health, they're, they're fine, they can be looked after. But for small medium enterprises, it's around their support and, you know, kind of working to help professional support really their employees in those particular organisations. Anything you can do there around communications, about better partnering for SMEs, linking better into maybe into business networks more effectively. I think that anything like that will certainly help to address this particular agenda going forward. Thank you. And can I add, I'm, we recently published a, um, a report providing practical guidance for particularly NHS employers, yeah? Um, called The Difference It Makes, Putting Human Rights at the Heart of Health and Social, social Care. And um, it provides kind of a practical toolkit um, so that people could implement what the evidence shows to be true, which is that if you place human rights right at the heart of your organisation and your relationship with your staff, it does indeed translate over to better patient outcomes, which is what we all want. Fantastic, thank you. And we'll make sure that we put a link to that as well. Um, Thank you very much for joining us today to uh, explore the subject of mental health in the workplace. If there was one key message that you would like our listeners to take away from today's podcast, can I ask you what that would be, please? For me, it's about placing the individual at the heart of your practice, making sure that you look beyond the, the labels and look to the individual and the impact on the individual. Yeah, for me, it's about don't be afraid to challenge, have that open have the conversation, have that dialogue, and even though it may feel uncomfortable, have that difficult conversation. For managers, engage, have that conversation. Thank you.
I think it would be a question, have you put respecting human rights at the heart of everything you do? Thank you very much. That concludes today's uh, discussion exploring the topic of mental health in the workplace. Please do link to our website that we mentioned earlier for further information and thank you very much for listening.